Hi, everybody. I'm Sari Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. We have a short bonus episode for you at a time when Americans are supposed to be grateful for what we have. Uh, this is a story from London where one of Quartz's reporters, uh, Amna Modine, uh, decided to report on a refugee camp just across the English Channel in Calais, France, uh, where people fleeing Africa and the Middle East have wound up as they wait for uh, a chance to reach uh, asylum in the United Kingdom. This story was reported and recorded before the Paris attacks, but these are the same refugees that are inspiring fear uh, among people following those attacks, uh, even though many of them are are fleeing uh, ISIL themselves. They're fleeing the same kind of terror uh, of course, also many of them are economic migrants. Um, in either case, these are folks without homes hoping to find some new place to settle. In the United States, we take comparatively few refugees and give them asylum. And it's a process that includes various security background checks and interviews over the course of often more than a year. Europe has taken in far more refugees than the U.S. has in the last decade. And thousands of these refugees are in Calais, France. Uh, Amna Modin, you recently went to Calais to report on aid workers at these refugee settlements, which uh, this settlement at Calais is known as the jungle. Uh, Where is it exactly? So it's actually the closest point to the UK near Dover. So um, the channel is what separates them. And I think it's pretty much less than 30 miles. And it's the go-to place for migrants if they want to illegally enter the UK. And migrants have been actually going to Calais since 1992 after um, outbreak of the war in Yugoslavia. Um, and the French government actually did open a refugee camp there. It was really controversial at the time in 1999. I think it was called San Jete. No, don't speak a word of French. But... Um, that was quite controversial and the UK government accused them of creating this pole of attraction um, for refugees and migrants. Um, so then they shut it down in 2002. So a lot of migrants just used to squat around in empty buildings um, and create their own little tiny camps. But there was a lot of pressure on the French government to kind of respond to this growing refugee crisis. So they opened this day centre. And they'd say, we'd give you one meal a day and you'd get an opportunity to shower and and got used a toilet there. Um, so that's when a lot of people who lived in different buildings and different areas in Calais started just kind of migrating towards that. And that's when like the so-called jungle um, was born. And Amna, it wasn't until you arrived that you say you really realized your own personal connection to this camp. Um, you were born a refugee. What was that like? And, you know, I've got an English accent and I've pretty much growing up in England and um, it's just when I got there and I kept getting free things <laughs> I didn't really know how to cope <laughs> it's just like I was like oh uh, no I'm not a refugee well I guess I used to be and then that's kind of when it hit me a little bit um, I came back and I was talking to my mum about it I kind of knew like they escaped from a civil war and came here but not like the whole story um, and then she just tells me this kind of insane story of her being nine months pregnant and getting on a boat and coming to Kenya and I was like what? Wait you hadn't, <laughs> you you hadn't heard that story before? No! Whoa. <laughs> I was like how have you waited like 23 years to tell me this? Um, so yeah she was quite heavily pregnant with me at the outbreak um, of the Somali civil war. She lived in Mogadishu which is the capital of Somalia um, and she didn't like actually immediately leave she was still there around you know 1992 um, when 
and mass migration started around 1998. Um, it wasn't until I think she said it was her neighbour who went to the shop to like get some chocolate for her and she just didn't come back because it's just like this bomb blast happened and I think that's when it pretty much like hit her like oh my god this is like this is happening this is here so she's like we have to leave and my dad just like was reluctant but agreed as well in the end and they just yeah that's when they started like this epic journey from like Mogadishu to Kismayo and from there had to get a boat to Kenya um because it, the land was just a lot more dangerous to try to walk through. In the end, I, they just flew. I think they, yeah, they applied for asylum and they flew. But um, but yeah, I was about five or six when I came here. Um, and just, yeah, I kind of picked up the language quite quickly. And, and how many uh, people are there in, in this settlement? 6,000, they're saying. And in the summer, they were saying 3,000. There's got to be some sort of flow in this camp, Who's leaving? How long do people stay? Where do the mm-hmm. people go? Is it, you know, is it sort of a pump of influx and then deportation and separation? How do people get out? Where do they go? It's pretty much a bottleneck where people are accumulating and the situation is like rapidly getting out of hand. I'm not really sure how the French government is going to continually ignoring it. Um, I mean, the, there was a local judge that said that they have to now, the local government has to install more toilets and water taps and set up a regular garbage collection system um, and a medical, like specifically also a medical evacuation route because if like a fire or something started out, there'll just be a huge stampede and many people will die because it's so cramped. Like when I was Mm. there, one of the lead person that I spoke to that I kind of centered the story around her because I kind of felt like there was so much similarities between us. Um, Johanna, she was like this is my tent and then right next to her there's just like uh, a Syrian family and they're all just like washing themselves <laughs> there's no space no privacy but I asked them um, how many people get through and there's someone I mean no one really knows someone said two to five a day um, get through to England yeah so so a lot of them the tunnel is a few miles away and they just said yeah they walk two to three hours to the tunnel try their luck and then walk back for two to three hours for the um and then there's also this highway right on top of the the jungle so if there's any sort of congestion or traffic that will attract a lot of attention people will try to get into the back of trucks i mean the most insane story where was when a few migrants got into a back of truck and there was a polar bear in the truck. What? Um, I know, <laughs> what? it's just like, I was like, what is, uh, what is going on? But they also try to jump onto moving trucks. Like several people have been died because they've gone onto these uh, tracks and they've just been hit by freight trains. So this situation sounds really untenable. Do you have any picture or hope knowledge of anyone who has a hope for a resolution to this situation or do you expect it to just continue on i think the only thing that can happen that would change this situation if if just they start taking people in both the both the uk and france and also i think i speaking to people there i just i was trying to get an understanding of okay you are in europe you're in france why don't you want to apply for asylum here a few of them have family here in the UK that they want to reconnect to, but I think the laws have tightened up in like family reunification for refugees. So that's a bit more difficult. Um, and other people just said like they speak English, they know they can get a job if they come here. Uh, this woman you met, uh, Johanna, mm-hmm. um, she, you end the story with her telling you that she'll see you in London. Uh, yeah. What do you think her odds are 
of making it to the UK? I'm not sure. She seemed, you know, I think they are in her favour. She seemed like after everything she went through, uh, she just seemed so determined. Like even when I gently was like, maybe have you thought of applying for asylum here? She just wasn't having any of it. She's definitely, she just kind of said it's either I get to London or I die. So we'll see. What was interesting actually was a lot of the volunteers who have turned up to give aid and stuff, they'll add these refugees or, and migrants on Facebook um, and there's been situations where they have turned up and they've been like, hi, I'm in the UK. Can you help me? Um, and everyone, they don't know what to do. They just freaked out themselves. So we were like told not to add people on Facebook when we were there unless we were willing to help them. That is such a weird symbol of like the boundaries of philanthropy. Mm, definitely. Um Everyone kind of has this idea that people are so grateful when you come bringing aid. But also, um, you know, sometimes you do more harm than good when you just don't have any experience and you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where the food that you're given goes to, or whether you're like supporting a black market there because there are shops and stuff. When I went into Johanna's tent, she had like loads of canned goods, uh, sweet corn and peas and stuff like that. But she doesn't have a can opener. And now that's just, just like a thing desired thing in the camp to have a can opener and it's just something as simple as that where how could you turn up to bring loads of canned goods and not think that they'll need something to open it with so I think that's what kind of I was quite vivid in my head when I left with worried. You're a person in between two cultures two places in a way when you see people that sort of embody the journey that your parents went through when you see sort Mm. of the one side of the spectrum that is you how does that make you think about yourself? I did feel really guilty, like almost survivor's guilt. I just felt like I don't understand why I'm here and, you know, I have this great job and I'm doing what I love and they're just in this, like, hellhole and I didn't really understand why that was the case. Um, I didn't really have explanations for them as to why. Well, they asked me, you know, like, why, why did you get citizenship? What did you do? But mostly yeah, I kind of feel weird and guilty. Um, and also very, very grateful for my parents doing all of that to can make sure I had a better life. Amna Modine is a London-based reporter for Quartz. Amna, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all the time we have for this bonus episode, but I personally hope that it gets people to think a little bit about the circumstances of others and how good we have it and how lucky we are to have it that good. Well said. If you want to know more about global migration patterns and the various events and people behind them, uh, please visit marketplace.org and qz.com. And while you're at Quartz, sign up for our daily brief. It's the perfect way to start the day. And by the way, we'd love to know what you think about this bonus podcast, what you liked, what you didn't, and what topics we should take on in the future. So email us at mpqz at marketplace.org or leave us a message at 802-430-6779. And holler at us on Twitter. I'm at Sabritri and Tim is at Tim Fernholz with a Z. Jake Gorski made our lovely theme song. Thanks to him. Thanks to our producer, Claire Tennisketter, and to our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from around the world. See you then.